Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So today's episode is a kind of, you know, debate wrap-up. We've got Ellen Nelson, who's one of our reporters who's been on the campaign trail in New Hampshire. She's talked to a lot of these candidates. She's able to provide a ton of insight into some of what was happening behind the scenes in the debate, what the real dynamics here are. I think if you want to understand the current state of the primary, this is the episode to listen to. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Vox.com's own Ellen Nelson. Uh, we're going to talk about the debate that happened last night, also the many splendid things you have seen in the great state of New Hampshire, um, out on the trail. Um, I thought the most striking thing, you know, as somebody who is plugged into the internet all day, every day, I knew exactly what they were arguing about in that whole fight about wine caves. But I think it might be a little impenetrable <laughs> to like a like a normal person. Uh, so like what what went what went on there? Like Elizabeth Warren started talking about Pete doing fundraisers in a cave. Yes. In a beautiful, opulent cave. <laughs> <laughs> so what so what was this? Like what what's she talking about? So this all happened. So I mean the Pete Warren fight, the, this is a fight that has kind of been simmering for for a while. Um and Pete and Warren, I think the context to understanding why these two went after each other so so much last night is that there is uh some some overlap in the voters that like Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. So they are kind of going for a subset of voter that is well educated maybe more wealthy than sort of the, like the working class voter that Bernie Biden are going after. So that is that's sort of the reason for this like this underlying competition. Right. They're they're fishing in the same pool of voters. Yes, exactly. So um so last night uh this was actually all kicked off because Warren was just sort of talking about her grassroots fundraising approach and Pete kind of had this little thing where he was like, "Well, I feel like that might have been directed at me." And and then kind of, you know, launched into a defense of uh why he is accepting you know, doing high dollar fundraisers and accepting donations from billionaires or millionaires or whatever. And that was sort of the perfect opening for Warren to launch into her wine caves attack. <laughs> right. But so this is, I, I mean, this is interesting to, you know, those of us who've followed politics for more than one election cycle, um, all candidates do high dollar fundraisers, like traditionally, right? Traditionally, like, yeah. That, that, that is how you raise, you raise money. Um, you ask rich people to write you uh, 
four-figure checks um, and you go have dinner with them or cocktails. Right. Um, and it was kind of funny because last night, so I saw um, one of my one of my friends who works at the AP in California was talking to Gavin Newsom last night and he was like, so many Democratic politicians have been in that very wine cave right. asking for money. <laughs> it's not a new thing. It's not like Pete was the first one to stumble on the wine cave. Right. And it's, it's first Bernie Sanders and then Elizabeth Warren have both fundraise off a different model, which yes. is like small donors over the internet. And now they are trying to make that like a new norm. The standard. Yeah, that yes. like it's it's bad to go to rich people's houses or caves and, and beg them for money. Right. And it's, it's worth remembering that back in 2016, I mean, Bernie Sanders was really the first one that showed that you could, you could actually power a presidential campaign with all of the millions of dollars that takes with these small grassroots donations. And now Sanders and Warren are doing that more so than, you know, all of the candidates like to tout their grassroots donations. Right. Like Pete loves to talk about his, you know, 700,000 individual donations or whatever and, and you know, how much money he's raised from that. But the fact is that that Buttigieg and Biden and Klobuchar and Cory Booker are also doing high-dollar fundraisers. They're to, to varying levels of transparency about what is being said at those fundraisers. Biden's have been open press for since the beginning of the campaign. Pete's a little bit more recently after Warren has really been pushing him on it. But yeah, so the wine caves thing, I think, really hit because Recodes, Voxes, Teddy Schieffler uh, found photos of this event um, on Instagram, I think, and posted them to, to Twitter. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, it just looks, it's a really fancy dinner in a cave. Right. There's this huge chandelier that's beautiful. It has, you know, like thousands of Swarovski crystals on it. It's glittering. There's this long table with these really nice chairs. You know, the AP had reported on this fundraiser and, and just noted that this vineyard itself makes bottles of wine that go for $900. So it's like, if you are, you know, Joe Schmo. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just get into this fundraiser. So so while while this, you know, this this fight over wine caves and, you know, wine caves being batted around like erupted on Twitter last night, I wrote about this last night and I think the real fight was not about a wine cave. It was about political access and who gets to have it. Right. And the point that Warren was making was anybody can come to my event and stand in line and get a selfie with me, and I'm not asking them to pay $500 for that privilege. But and certainly Pete is meeting voters and talking to voters as well on you know regular his regular stints in front of uh, regular voters, but. People are also paying for the privilege of an intimate conversation with Pete over fancy wine. Right. You get you get special access yes. to, to the candidate of these things. I, I think one issue that is often not, you know, fully elaborated in this is like, what is it that people are getting when they pay money for special access to the candidate? Right. Because the presumption of the criticisms is that they are getting um, leverage. Right. That it's like you pay money, you get to go to this thing and now you get to like tell Pete like, hey, my expensive vineyard, you know, really needs some help. Right. You uh, have his ear. With, with your tax breaks. The other possibility is that these are big time politics fans. Just like just like you, like broke millennial, giving three dollars to Bernie Sanders and following all his memes and, and retweeting and stuff like that. But if you were richer 
and you lived in California, you could have a more immersive fandom experience by cutting a $1,500 check and going to the dinner and you like bask in the in the glory of your favorite politician. Just like like you could listen to an album on Spotify, but you could also go to the show, right? right. And it costs more money. And like it doesn't like give you input over the album, but like it's cool. But yeah, but Warren's argument is that that person with $15,000 might have a little bit more, you know, if if a politician takes that $15,000, they might be a little bit more inclined to listen to what that person has to say right. than the $3 donor. No, no, no. I mean, I know. But at the same time, you know, it's what's striking to me is that the candidates who do online fundraising, right, they're obviously not like getting on the phone with the person who, who you know, clicked a button and sent them 10 bucks. Well, in Warren's case, she was. Well, I, I mean, sporadically. <laughs> but I mean, yes. not, not yeah, all yeah, of yeah. Them, right? No, so, obviously. Because you can. You can't at scale. Uh, but they're certainly cognizant of the fundraising implications of the things that they do. Right. Right? Like, it's not a coincidence that the grassroots donor, uh, that the, like, the, the grassroots candidates are all super left-wing. Right? It's like, that's where... In a weird way, like, that's where the money is. Right. And, I mean, it's it has been kind of interesting because so far, I mean, Bernie Sanders is blowing away Biden and Pete in, in terms of the fundraising right. so far. So he's shown that not only is this a sustainable model, it is a very, very sustainable model. Right. I mean, the, the, the lesson in this campaign is that if, if all you care about is campaign cash, right, the right thing to do is avoid the wine caves. Right. Avoid... Avoid the limits. Right. Yeah. A- avoid Joe Biden hanging out with Comcast lobbyists and adopt super left-wing policy positions. They're like, that's how you get money, right? And the reason <laughs> Biden and Pete have more moderate policy positions isn't that their moderate policy positions are a good way to raise money. It's actually a bad way to raise money. Mm-hmm. It's that they think they're more popular in the general election. Right. You know, and that's like a it, it it inverts, I think, a lot of the discourse around this. Like to an extent, we have like Joe Biden's gritty working class coalition yeah. against Bernie Sanders's like financial juggernaut. Well, I just have to say, uh, in a couple of days, I'm, so I'm about to go to New Hampshire for Christmas, but also for reporting. And in a few days, I'm going to be going to Bernie Sanders' holiday dinner in Keene, New Hampshire, Ooh. and Ro Khanna is going to be there. So um, I don't think it's going to be in a wine cave. <laughs> it might be, oh, it's actually, it's at a farm. Um, so yeah, so I'll keep you posted. <laughs> well, you know, so, okay, so Northern California Twitter got fired up about this. And yeah. apparently... If you are producing wine, an agricultural product, storing it in a cave is an integral aspect to wine yes, production. Yes, I saw, I saw this, I saw this fight happen on Twitter last night, <laughs> and I was just like, "Come on!" I'm, I'm from the Northeast too, <laughs> but obviously, if you're campaigning in New Hampshire, you hang out in some farms. Yes, right. Yeah, that's farms salt of the are a lovely place. That's salt to of the out. earth stuff. Yeah. And so, in California, they have wine farms. Right, but I mean, it is worth it is worth pointing out. So, California, California is a hugely is going to be hugely important. I mean, it's hugely important every year to the primaries, but even more so because this year it's going to be Super Tuesday. Yes, and California typically, because it's it's such a huge state, you know, it's almost sort of like its own little mini country unto itself. Um, it's it's harder for candidates to campaign there than, say, Iowa and New Hampshire. So typically, it's a fundraising destination. Like, typically, it is where you go to, to raise money for your campaign. But I think it is going to be really interesting because Bernie and, and to some extent, Warren as well, have really sort of been putting an emphasis on it as, as a campaigning destination. Right. Um, and Bernie has a 
a really sizable team there. Um, they are putting a lot of work into seeing if they can win because, of course, California has, like, a huge cache of delegates. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see California this year kind of coming into its own as, you know, as an important place to campaign in addition to a place to fundraise. Yeah, to do rallies yeah. instead of to hit up. Because it was this, – this wine cave thing, it, it came on the tail end. It was like a four-fundraiser, you know – stop for right. Pete, like, touring through the Bay Area, then out to Napa. Um, and that's, like, normally how Democrats treat California. It's, right. it's not a swing state. Uh, there's a lot of rich people. Um, and it's really big, so it's it's difficult to campaign there. Um, you know, so then Pete hit Warren, making the point that she herself is very rich um, and I think would not, could, uh, you know, not a billionaire, I guess, but richer than him. Um, yeah. And all, all those other candidates are are rich people. Yeah, um, Pete has been fond of saying lately on the campaign trail and on the debate stage that he is the only person up there that it's not a millionaire. Yeah, uh, which is true. He's also a lot younger than the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> he you has know, time. <laughs> he, he might be a millionaire someday. Um, but, you know, it, it does, I, I guess to an extent, you know, if you're concerned about, okay, does this person understand the experience, like the economic experiences of a normal everyday person, that would be his point, right? That like, in part because he's young, he's like a regular participant in the modern day economy. Sure, yeah. Of like student loans and, He's you know, been selecting his healthcare plan on the Obamacare exchanges is another thing that's come up on the campaign yeah, trail. He, yeah, he's the mayor of this random town, right. uh, which like is not that well-paying job, I right. think. Like, it's a fine job. But, yeah. you know, it's not like being a celebrity senator who writes best-selling books and, right. and has a rich husband. Um, you know, I, but I, I guess, you know, Warren's point, I mean, her whole message throughout that debate was about corruption, not about, like, personal in-touchness, right? And that's the where the question about, I think, the transparency in Buttigieg's uh, fundraisers is also relevant, that Biden has been doing these things, but he's always had pooled press reports yes. from them. And with Pete, there's been a lot of questions about access and raising the prospect of, like, what's he really saying? Yeah, and that's something that Warren has really been pushing on, certainly in the last few weeks. Um, and this was kind of coming at the same time. This has died down a little bit, but at the same time of, like, the, the McKinsey controversy mm-hmm. into sort of, like, what did Pete do for McKinsey when he was, um, you know, recently out of college? Um, and, yeah, I mean, it just sort of, like, plays into this whole idea of being transparent and, you know, what is being said at these at these fundraisers, the same sort of idea of, like, I mean, Warren last night at the debate sort of alluded to, like, smoke-filled back rooms of, you know, mm-hmm. th- these are where these decisions, the decisions about America gets made and, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that this this push for transparency, I mean, corruption and getting corruption out of D.C. is Warren's core message. That is, she tied essentially— the vast majority of her responses to debate questions last night back to this theme of anti-corruption and we should get rid of Washington, D.C. corruption. So, yeah, and I, and I think, I mean, it is, it, corruption is something that voters across a wide swath of the Democratic Party care about. It's something that moderate voters care about. It's something that liberal voters care about. So it, it is an effective message. Yeah, and it's, it's a refocusing for her away from the sort of Medicare for all quagmire yes. to, like, what had originally been, I think, the focus of, of I mean, you you wrote about it. Um, I did. Right when she she first rolled out her, like, big anti-corruption thing. She didn't talk that much, I think, about the sort of specifics of it 
last night. Uh, but but like what like what's in there? Like what's the so much, <laughs> <laughs> so much. Um, she likes to call it the the biggest anti corruption plan since Watergate. That's kind of the tagline. So she she put out like a big piece of it. Well, it first was a it was a bill um, when she was a senator back before she had announced her campaign for president. So I wrote about it then, and then she put it out obviously as a a plan when she was a presidential candidate, and she's kind of been adding to it ever since. And this is like a plan that touches the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Mm -hmm. It has like a lifetime lobbying ban for members of Congress, which there is some debate on if that is good or not, even with <laughs> among, uh, you know, the anti-corruption get money out of politics community. It's just a sweeping thing. It's it's trying to cut down on the influence of lobbying. It's trying to it's it has a lot to do with uh, federal rulemaking and the regulations process and sort of who gets to get, have say with that. One thing that she has been bringing up a lot in light of um, Gordon Sondland, uh, former yeah, EU ambassador, yeah. is who is a former big mega donor to Trump is like. Again, you know, if someone is a – I'm not having huge donors because I want to cut down. It's like if somebody gives me a ton of money, I'm not going to just name them ambassador and give them like a cushy ambassador Right. She, she's committed to using career diplomats yeah. uh, for, for those things and, and her plan. I, I mean it's interesting because you often hear sort of good government pledges from candidates and they're typically very sort of – populist oriented like they hit a couple big headline themes but hers is really detailed actually yes. you know and it reflects a lot of her experience with as you said the rulemaking process which is like I, I don't think normal people actually like do walk around being concerned about corporate influence over the rulemaking process because I don't know what that is um but it's like a big but it's important thing. yeah yes. yeah um in in reality um and and a big kind of focus of hers um okay let's let's take a break and then let's talk about uh mayor Pete's other big fight of the night support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy with the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. 
So I think casual observers of politics may have been a little surprised to see that with the, with the smaller cast of characters, there was a lot of screen time taken up by Amy Klobuchar fighting with Pete Buttigieg. She's sort of in fifth place in the polls, has not been as much in the national discussion, um, and she seemed to really, like, really have an in for Pete. Yeah, she had a night last night. <laughs> uh, and it was a huge contrast to the debate night, the the one before last month, where it, it appeared she was maybe trembling or shaking. Um, but, uh, Rachel Dratch had a parody of her on Saturday Night Live <laughs> yes. with her, her quivering bangs. Um, yeah, but, she changed her hair. She had more uh, composure and Got a lot of zingers she off. She had one-liners, man. Yeah, the, the my favorite Amy line of the night was about the wine cave. was yeah. like, well, I've never been to a wine cave, but I've been to a wind cave in South <laughs> Dakota. It was like very good Midwestern yes. weirdness. But yeah, so so Amy Klobuchar uh, got a good, you know, got landed the, the punch that she wanted to on Pete Buttigieg last night, which was kind of a dig over his relative lack of experience, which is kind of the thing that he is— running on. I mean, he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Compared to the rest of the candidates up on that stage, he he does not have a lot of government experience. No. <laughs> um, and that is sort of the thing that he is running on. I mean, he's running on, I am a fresh face. I am not of Washington. You know, I am a Midwestern mayor. I know what people in the Midwest are concerned about. And like, I can get things done in the way that these Washington politicians can't. And she was just like, basically, respect your elders. <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, I think she had like a few points about this, right? I mean, Pete, I, I got to say, I, I'm to an extent a, a Buttigieg apologist. Um, but whenever, you know, I hear him do this thing about like how he has like won in the Midwest and like knows what people in the Midwest think, I mean, I, I do kind of want to scream. It's like... South Bend is in the Midwest, right? But it's a it's a college town. Yeah. You know, I I did a did a panel at Texas Tribune Festival, and we had uh, the county commissioner from Austin uh, was there, and she she's a great great lady, uh, Sarah Eckhart. But like her ability to win in Austin, Texas, has nothing to do with her ability to win statewide in Texas or like the South as a region, right? right. Whereas Amy Klobuchar, you know, Minnesota is a bit more liberal than Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, but she's won statewide there, and she's won by, like, really big a margins. Yeah. You know, you, like, you don't need to love her style of politics, which is pretty moderate, but, like, unquestionably, like, the electorate of the Midwestern state of Minnesota is really enthusiastic about it, yeah. right? And, like, Pete can't actually say that for right. himself. Right, he hasn't won statewide. He hasn't <laughs> And she pointed out, I mean, he, he, got, he got crushed when he ran for treasurer, Indiana. Yeah. yeah, she brought up a couple of like sore points, which was A, uh, the treasurer run, and then B, when he tried to run for chair of the DNC uh-huh. <laughs> and also did not win that. And she kind of had this thing where she was like, she was like, well, you know what? I never wanted to be chair of the DNC. I want to be president, but <laughs> I've won not once, but three times. So yep. it was, yeah, I mean, it, w- it was a good point to make. Yeah. And it was at one point, you know, he kind of brought it back to something that he he also brings up on the trail a lot, which is his military service. And I thought, you know, she kind of had an effective comeback to that, which she said, I respect your military service, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about judging the fitness of the next president of the United States. Right. And also, that takes experience. Right, right. I mean, experience in, in, in government and, and in yes. uh, electioneering. So you said something uh, last night about your reporting that I think really helped clarify to me, like, why. I, I think to a lot of people it looked personal. Yeah. Like, Klobuchar going after 
Buttigieg, I mean, not that anyone's above criticism, but it's like there's a bunch of people on the field, like why Pete in particular? Uh, but but it sounded from from your reporting like there's a real strategic rationale to this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they, they're they in the same lane, right? I mean, she she is also a moderate. It's kind of been interesting watching them at past debates. I mean, they they kind of almost tag-teamed a healthcare attack on Elizabeth Warren and were both sort of like the moderates pushing the, mm-hmm. the, the public option. But the fact is, is that the thing that is kind of standing in the way between like Amy Klobuchar being the best moderate alternative to Joe Biden is Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. And I um, was in New Hampshire recently talking to a lot of voters um, at Pete Buttigieg events. And just I always ask every voter I talk to who they're considering. Mm-hmm. Um, and her name kept coming up over and over and over again among the people that were interested in Buttigieg mm-hmm. as well. And the thing that I kept hearing over and over again is, I really like her. She seems really feisty. She seems like she could stand up to Trump, but she's just not doing well in the polls, and it seems like other people don't really like her. She's not catching on, so, like, I can't support her if she's not catching on. Right, because, I mean, politics is a coordination game, right? I mean, like, I know people, people in my family who like Cory Booker, right? And, like, if they could just pick the nominee, they would pick Cory Booker. But they also want to have an influence over the process. Yes. And if he's, like, a million points behind, they're sitting there, they're thinking, like, who do, how do I feel about Bernie versus Biden, maybe Warren, maybe Buttigieg? And, like, the challenge for Klobuchar is that if she could get everyone to agree that, like, the mayor of South Bend just can't be president, the people who like him might like her Right. Second best. Yeah. Or absolutely. Best, right. And that and 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 second choice matters in Iowa. I right. mean, I've I've written that before. It's I mean, as far as the Iowa caucuses go, you know, if your candidate can't make 15 percent, you know, the second choice is, is a big thing on on realignment. So and, and I think that, you know, Klobuchar has been spending a ton of time in Iowa. She's been making some trips to New Hampshire as well. But she and Buttigieg, I would say, I mean, everybody's really focused on Iowa this year because it's such a, a huge field. But yeah, and I. The Iowa caucuses, as we know, are all about overperforming expectations. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if she keeps having these good debate performances and she keeps she's talking to a lot of voters in Iowa and keeps doing that, she could, because she's kind of been undercovered by the media, she could kind of come out of nowhere and have like a better than expected Iowa finish. And then she's going to be in it. She's going to be in the mix. Yeah. And that puts her in a strong position t- for New Hampshire. I mean, I really have to say, you know, we were talking about Buttigieg's uh, fundraising and we have not talked about Michael Bloomberg spending no. $8 trillion. Yeah. On a, but to, I feel personally like that's the struggles Klobuchar has had getting on the radar, like, it speaks so poorly of the, like, rich, moderate donors as a group because ultimately, like, one of her problems is that she has so much less money than Pete does and obviously right. has less money than Michael Bloomberg does. But it's like if you want a moderate Democrat who seems like a strong electability choice who doesn't, like, promise a political revolution. Like, a lot of people don't want that. But if you do want that, like, why not get the one who's, like, well-qualified and age-appropriate? Why not Amy? Right. No, <laughs> I mean, it's in, it's in driving me nuts, the whole campaign, because, like, I don't, I both, like, don't feel like becoming, like, a full-time, like, Amy Stan. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I see people fill in their wine cave with Pete donors, and I'm like, well, Okay. How about someone who's like really one statewide in the Midwest? Like, why not a woman? Right? Yeah. Like, isn't there a lot of excitement about that? And, you know, I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, I, I think the like 
sexism electability discourse is mostly focused around Elizabeth Warren yes. and Kamala Harris. But I mean, I think especially because the moderate lane is so dominated by electability considerations. I mean, I wonder how much that kind of haunts voters. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, I, I, I definitely think it it is haunting voters a lot. I can confirm that from, you know, everybody that I've talked to Everybody has their candidate that they like, but everybody also has anxiety about that candidate going up against Trump. Uh-huh. That's true whether it's Joe Biden. It's true whether it's Warren. It's true whether it's Buttigieg. It's, you know, everybody Everybody is so afraid of the general election and who ultimately is going to be the Democratic nominee that, yeah, I, I think that, like— Everybody, it's it's almost like this thing where it's like everybody has choices, and for the most part, everybody likes their choices, but everyone's also really anxious about their choices. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, the other thing about Amy that that is sort of unrelated, but I, I almost sort of think that uh, when it comes to the moderate lane, like Buttigieg is now so like viscerally disliked among the left wing, mm-hmm. and I kind of feel like, I mean, obviously she hasn't gotten the same amount of scrutiny uh, that that he has, but I almost sort of feel like she might be like a more palatable, moderate alternative to like more left-wing folks. Yeah, I mean, I don't totally understand the like full logic of this, but there seems to be a sentiment that Pete is like unusually angering to people who are more left-wing than he is. Yeah. Than other people. I, I mean, I guess... I guess the narrative is that he's a faker, that he— That he's not trustworthy, basically, I think, is what what people on the left think. Right. Whereas somebody like Klobuchar, first won statewide in 2006 as a kind of of middle-of-the-road Democrat, she won again in 20— I I don't know. This is just who she's always been. Yeah. And it isn't necessarily like a—I don't know, like a— entryism into the movement. I guess also, the like, the fact that Buttigieg is young seems to annoy young leftists. Yeah, I think it's a combination of his age and then just, like, the fact that Klobuchar and Biden are just, like, more upfront about them being moderate. I mean, there's, like, there was the whole thing about, you know, back in 2018, just a year ago, <laughs> Buttigieg had a tweet you know, saying that he was in favor of Medicare for all. And now he is very clearly not in favor of Medicare for all. So I think it's things like that. Whereas, you know, Klobuchar and Biden are are pretty upfront about where they stand. Right, where they've been. And, you know, I mean, I've also, you know, there's obviously there's a strong like age gradient inside the Democratic Party. And it's particularly if Biden is the nominee, I think people who are on the left would say, okay, we wanted to win the 2016 primary, we wanted to win the 2020 primary, but our time has not come yet, mm-hmm. right? But obviously, Joe Biden is not like the future of politics no. in the long run, right? Whereas, like, Pete Buttigieg would be, like, he could serve two terms and he would be still super young, yeah. right? Like, kicking around as an influential figure and it would lose the sense of the left being, like, on the right side of history. Yeah. I don't know if that is, like, again, kind of just, like, fear of of because of his age and because he can is going to be around for a long time of, you know, if what how that is going to shape Democratic politics, especially right. at this moment where, you know, the older candidates like Bernie and Warren are are pitching this very fresh, bold, you know, idea of of where we can go, the big structural change idea. Right. Um, whereas Buttigieg is, it's not even, I mean, he, it's not even that he's pitching more of the same, like Biden, Biden's sort of, you know, pitching the more normalcy thing, but it's like he's pitching more of the same in a sort of vague idea, a vague sense where people, people just like aren't sure and 
are worried well, about it's, it. But, so it's like uh, what what Pete's message is like is it's like Obama's message. Yeah. Which was like, we're going to be so new and so different. But then like, actually, it's not that different. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a fresh. Well, when you're up against somebody like Sanders or Warren, it's. You know, that puts it into a whole yeah, yeah, different yeah. perspective. But I mean, even though the, the whole 2008 campaign, I mean, which I, I remember covering and getting very emotionally invested in, it was always a little unclear what the, like, content of that yeah. argument was. Right. Even though it was incredibly, like, like, deeply felt. And in retrospect, it seems even more mysterious, right? So, like, Obama said Hillary's uh, foreign policy judgment was bad, and then he made her secretary of state. Right. He said we didn't need an individual mandate in healthcare, and then that's, like, his main legislation. Yeah. So, like, like, what was that even about, right? No, definitely. And I don't have the context of 2008, because I was in high school during that Fair enough. (laughs) Let me tell you about the 2004 campaign. (laughs) When I was a literal child, <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Uh, okay, let's 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 take another break. I'll I'll feel embarrassed about being old, um, and then let's <laughs> let's talk about the old guys who are actually winning. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the fireworks, I think, kind of happened in these these undercard candidates. Um, but Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, still number one, number two. Uh, Warren had a, a moment as number two in the polls, but, but Bernie's back there. And I thought, like, for the first time, Joe Biden, to me, like, looked like he was, like, on the whole time and, like, a good politician who you, you could understand why he was doing well. Yeah, no, he, he, had, a, he had a good night. I think probably... Do you think it's fair to say it was his best debate performance? Thus I mean, far? I think by far. Yeah, you know, it yeah. was like you wouldn't. I don't know. It's like nobody is going to find everything convincing, but like he gave his answers. He even in the sort of tough question about like, isn't this Republican epiphany nonsense? Like he had like a good, vigorous response that, yeah. that made sense. He had good jokes. Um, he had this weird burn on Politico. Yeah, uh, everyone. Yes. Yeah, everyone was dunking on Tim Alberta at one point, like one right after the other. It was it was funny. Yeah, no, I think I think Biden Biden had a good night. Uh, Bernie maybe had sort of a less like you know eye catching night or whatever. But he you know he he did what he needed to do. I, I think, think I think yeah. Bernie misses those like like loser house moderate candidates 
who, you know, they they used to try to get attention by attacking him and then right. he would like dunk on them. Right. Like Tim Ryan and, oh my and, gosh, and all yeah. those guys. And that was always like Bernie's best stuff. Yes. Yeah. His, his he's still he still brings up the I wrote the damn bill one liner. Right. Whenever he can. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it is interesting. I recently wrote a piece about Biden and just kind of his path to the Democratic nomination because his campaign is I think, pretty feeling pretty good right now because uh-huh. he has just weathered a lot of bad stories. Uh-huh. There, it, It's almost sort of like this Trump-like effect where it's like, you know, we had the segregationist senators at the very beginning of his campaign. We had the women complaining about the weird hugging and the touching stuff. We had, you know, there, there, there's so much that the questions about, you know, his, you know, whether his age and whether he's too old to be doing this. And yet he is still here and he is still the front runner by a pretty substantial margin. And if you look at, you know, just the polling averages, like both he and Bernie are a relatively steady line. Yep. And Bernie had a heart attack in the middle of all of this. And he, you know, his polling has not really suffered for it. So, um, and it is interesting with Biden, too, because he's he is not the front runner in Iowa and New Hampshire right, right. now. He's not the front runner in the two earliest states that really matter. Um, but but I think his campaign feels like he has he has the Obama coalition. He has this diverse coalition in places like South Carolina and Southern Super Tuesday states. And basically, they just feel like, Sure, like Biden loses Iowa and maybe doesn't do so well in New Hampshire, but like he will pull like South Carolina will vote for him no matter what. And like he will pull it out and he can do this. But this is I mean, this is the strategic dilemma, right? It's like I think it's unquestionable that if if there was a national primary at the end of January, like Biden would just win. Yeah. Right. But the first two states to go are relatively bad Biden states. Yes. Right. Because they're they're all white basically. Yes. And, you know, depending on, he can definitely lose those two states and still win. But I think it does matter who he loses them to. Right. And at this point, we have no idea who that will be. Right. So, you know, Bernie Sanders, who is in a strong second place position and who has a ton of money in the bank, right? If he wins Iowa and then gets a little pole bump, and then wins New Hampshire and gets a little poll bump. Then he should be within striking distance yes. in national polls. He should be able to force Warren out of the race. He'll have lots of money, more money than Biden, to run ads in the Super Tuesday states. And he has, I should just point out, a, a very strong Super Tuesday operation right. already in place. Right. Lots of people. And, and really easy to see him overtaking Biden and winning. Yes. Whereas I don't quite get what the, like, like what's like the act two for Mayor Pete? Yeah, that's that is the that is the sort of that is the thing right here is is that even if Pete wins Iowa and New Hampshire, his polling is still bad in South Carolina. It's not great in Nevada. He has he has a problem in in non-white voting states, and his campaign has basically just said we're still introducing him to people in these states. Right. And once you know we introduced him to people in Iowa and New Hampshire, they seem to love him, but we just need to do more work in these other states. But it's also again um, in terms of you know who is ready for Super Tuesday because. Once February is over, I mean, literally, South Carolina is on a Saturday and mm-hmm. Super Tuesday is a Tuesday. So you have essentially three days to go from, like, this early state campaign to a national campaign. That's a hard thing to pull off if you haven't been prepping. And, I mean, as far as, you know, Buttigieg still has a couple of months to to put people in place. But 
they are mostly relying on volunteers in Super Tuesday right. states thus far. And there's also just the question of like what's like what's the message? What's the point? Right. right. I mean, if if you're talking about Warren or Sanders in a duel against Biden, whichever side you're on, it's like it's easy to describe the stakes, right? right. Like, like what is the choice there? Buttigieg has mostly been arguing with the candidates to his left, which makes sense for the purposes of trying to win in Iowa. Yeah. But like ultimately is not like that's not who he would have to beat. Right. To he become would have the to nominee. Beat Biden. Right. Yes. And like I, I like I have never heard him like make the case for why he would be better than Joe Biden. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I wonder if we are going to start hearing that more and more. You know, I think that it is easier for him to draw contrast between himself and, say, Elizabeth Warren than it is himself and Joe Biden. But, right. um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I sort of feel like I think that that will happen after Iowa more. Yeah. That's I mean, his I mean, it big was, test. It was interesting. I mean, the whole debate, I, 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 like, had in my notebook, nobody criticized Joe Biden in the debate. And then I had to cross that out because Bernie— took like a like a glancing shot at him yeah. over Iraq. But it's still, it's like, it's been fascinating to watch this play out for months with Biden consistently in the lead and lots of people fighting with each other, but nobody saying, like, you know, if if you're just like a regular Democrat, you liked Barack Obama, you remember some good Joe Biden memes, you think Trump is terrible, like, like why not? Right. Why not Joe Biden, right? And, like, I can imagine why, arguments why the not. The new campaign slogan, why not Joe Biden? <laughs> well, but it's just like somebody would have to convince you, right. right? And, like, I just very rarely hear it in an explicit way. Sure. No, I think I think that's right. Um, and, and that is certainly not hurting Biden right now. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's letting him continue to sail along in the, you know— mid to high 20s in national polling. So, yeah, unless unless that changes in a big way. Um, and I, I also don't know if it's like, I don't know what the reticence would be in attacking Biden. I mean, I think that, I mean, as, as far as, as far as Warren goes, besides the fight with Pete last night, I think she has been sort of trying to stay out of the fray and that she feels like she is doing better when she is just above the fray. I think that's been true for most of the candidates except except for maybe Buttigieg and Klobuchar in a big way. Um, and, you know, Bernie sort of having these, these one-off attacks on Biden occasionally. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't think that we have seen sort of that phase of the campaign getting really nasty. I yet. have this like really intensively reported piece about Warren and Biden fighting for decades about yeah. this bankruptcy bill. And I keep wanting her to bring this up since it's like in her book, like literally the reason she got into politics is that Joe Biden had a bad bankruptcy bill. Um, but she doesn't she doesn't do it ever. I know. I thought she was going to bring that up at like the first or second debate and it just never, it has never happened. I saw an interview with her recently where the, uh, the interviewer directly asked her and she was like, well, I don't want to like fight about the past. And I yeah. was like, come on. Let's fight about the past. And then Sanders, right? So there was a moment when Warren had overtaken Sanders in the polls yes. and seemed close to overtaking Biden. And while that was happening, I felt like Bernie World uh, had a lot of attacks on, on Warren yes. to make. And now that Bernie, has, Not Bernie himself, but Bernie World. Sure. Um, but right. But I guess Bernie did, has not followed up on that. And now that he's back ahead of her, I guess the feeling is he can just ignore her. Yeah, I think that they are are just sort of trying to focus on their own thing. And I also sort of think that 
I, I do think that there is crossover among some progressives, but I do think that Bernie's campaign feels that his base is fundamentally different than than Warren's base and that he is sort of trying to go after this working class voter and that it, it maybe his ba- his voter base is actually more similar to Biden's voter base. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, the the I mean, a lot of the like fighting between Warren world and Bernie world was literally like who released their progressive policy first. Yeah. Like that was a lot of what it was, Um, which, yeah, I I think that 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 fighting has kind of died down. And that might also be because we are now past the policy rich summer (laughs) of 2019 and we're getting into sort of the more competitive, uh, you know, winter months. I thought you saw on the debate stage, though, actually the real contrast between Warren and Sanders, right? There's there's this theoretical contrast between them that you can see hashed out in, like, the pages of Jacobin and elsewhere, and it's all about, like, socialism and blah, blah, blah. I thought the real thing that you saw on the debate stage is that Warren is a much more native and fluent speaker of, like, modern intersectional politics. And Bernie, although, like, officially his campaign is, like, totally woke, right? Like, when he's just up there extemporizing, like, he will say things like, power in America is about billionaires versus everyone else, not about race, Right. right. Or answer a question about race by saying that climate change is bad for people of color. Right. And like that's like I think that's in his gut. Like he is not someone who is going to run around the country talking about white privilege. Like he thinks privilege is that billionaires control the country and that he's going to form a broad coalition against them. Right. And this other stuff doesn't count. Uh, whereas Warren is like very, you know, I'll say the name of trans women of color who are, you know, all, all this stuff. I mean, she has a strong economic message, but like she's invested in all these other things too. Oh, for sure. And and it is going to be really, int- I mean, obviously Biden still far and away has black voters, especially mm-hmm. older black voters, uh, you know, wrapped up. And I feel like the younger black vote is kind of split between Bernie and Warren at this point. But it is going to be interesting to see, especially depending on, you know, if Bernie or Warren has a particularly strong performance in New Hampshire, Iowa, like if anybody can really pose a threat to Biden in South Carolina. Right. Um, and if, if one of the two of them. And the, the other thing um, that I haven't been following as closely, but I need to do some reporting on is as far as Nevada goes, the third state yes. <laughs> after after New Hampshire. You know, Bernie has been doing pretty well among Latino voters so mm-hmm. far, which I think is a new thing for him uh, from, from 2016. So, yeah, I, that's that's also a really important cohort as well. And uh, I, I, we, we need to see how this plays out. But to your point, I, I think that they are both making concerted efforts, Warren and Bernie, maybe more so Warren, to to appeal to black voters. And yeah, we, we just have to see how this all shakes out after the first two states. Right. And, and to your point about, about the Latino vote, especially in, in Nevada, you know, if you compare the 2008 primary to the 2016 primary, Hillary almost flipped, you know, who her supporters were across those races. Uh, but Latinos was the exception. That was who she, she won both times she ran for president, uh, which has, I think, left a lot of people a little unsure, where, like, like where that vote is right. or, or, or what they stood for. And now Bernie seems to be doing well. And I, I mean, I've talked to some people, you know, 
number crunchers, uh, and they're trying to tease out, because people know Bernie does does the best with younger voters, and also the Latino population is much younger than the white or African-American population. So, like, what's the, you know, relationship right. between those two phenomena? Because, uh, like, Bernie's support is very, very age-loaded. Uh, and I think the whole thing is not that well understood, and we haven't, there just also hasn't been a lot of focus on Nevada, no, there hasn't. It's like a like a place, which right? is yeah, which is too big. We I well I I tried to focus on it a few months ago. I haven't <laughs> yeah. I haven't been back there, but but it you've is, been. I have been. Um, if anybody would like to check out my Nevada caucus explainer or just Nevada as a as a political state explained, um, yeah, I went. I talked to Harry Reid at yeah. the Bellagio. I talked to the head of the Culinary Union, which is a hugely important player in in Nevada politics. Um, and yeah, I mean, Nevada is this really interesting place where, I mean, most of most of the important part of it is is Vegas. Right. I mean, there's Reno and there there are other parts of the state, but but Vegas is really the big the big thing. And to in order to win Nevada, I, I think the thing that people kind of can't it, it took me talking to some people and before I kind of like understood Nevada in this way is that it's very it was very heavily Latino. It's diverse. A lot of African Americans. There's a pretty big uh, Filipino population there. Um Nevada and Vegas are working class towns. Like Vegas itself is a working class town. Um, and places, it's very union heavy. Mm-hmm. But those are service workers. Those are people that work in the casinos. They're people that work in hotels. They're people that cook, that clean. Um, but there is a very heavy union presence there. And yeah, it, it's it's a blue collar town. And the, and the Nevada caucuses are, it's an odd phenomenon because they have been constructed to further enhance the power of the culinary workers yes. union like they their caucus sites are made convenient for They're the right union on the casino strip. workers yeah. to go to and it has the reputation at least of being like a real machine yes operation and in 2016, I mean, this this has been well reported by, you know, people like John Ralston of the Nevada Independent, but you know, there is a very heavy suspicion from people who worked on the Bernie 2016 campaign that Bernie could have won Nevada if Harry Reid didn't intervene at the last minute, basically, right. and told the Culinary Union to get their people out to caucus sites and caucus for Clinton. Right. And it seems like Reid is for what? He has he has been very careful to not to not say that well, to say that he is not endorsing yes, anybody. He has not endorsed anybody. Yes. But it looked to me from interviews that I've seen with him that he has not been um, hiding his feelings super well. Yeah, I think that he he really, I mean, I think that they are, are close, you know, former Senate colleagues. I mean, he basically, like, helped recruit her to run for the Senate the right. first time. He thinks she's an incre- incredibly smart person. Um, but he also, I mean, he has all of these relationships, like, with everybody. It's crazy when you see, you know, there were just a bunch of his his former staff that uh, took a photo because he was at this, like, First in the West uh, event recently. And it's literally, like, his former staffer is 
Bernie's chief of staff. Um, Warren's comms director is a former Reed staffer. Uh, when Kamala Harris was was still running, she had Reed people. I mean, like basically everybody has a Reed staffer right. on their campaign. But I mean, but it's particularly point. with Bernie and Warren, right? So, so Warren's communications director came from Reed's office, and Warren herself was recruited into the yes. Senate by Harry Reed. Yes. Um, but then uh, Bernie's campaign manager uh, used to work for Reed, uh, as did um, Ari. Yes, right, right. Um, so like a, a couple of the so, and that's like late career Reed. Yes, all those people who are now working for the for the progressives. Right, but also like Harry Reed's like a like an old guy from the Senate, as is Joe Biden. Right, and they're like they're definitely buddies, even yeah. though they seem to have drifted in sort of ideologically different directions. Yeah, so Reed has all of these people from like different parts of his life that are now running <laughs> for for the presidency. And so I I interviewed him. This is now like months ago, like mm-hmm. during the summer. But yeah, I mean he he told me um, that yeah that he he really loves and respects. So many, you know, so many of the candidates. He yes. doesn't want to get involved, but of course, you know, it's it's worth remembering that he said he wasn't going to get involved in 2016. And usually, people don't really realize that Harry Reid has gotten involved in something until after it happens. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So, so, so in 2016, I mean, for 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 listeners at home who who don't know this, you know, he didn't say anything about the campaign. He was not, like, involved in a public way in the race. Uh, But everybody's understanding is that after New Hampshire primary, really, he, like, told the union he thought they should turn it on for Hillary. uh, And they did. And that was a, you know, important shot in the arm for her campaign. I mean, I don't, I don't even say, like, that's why she won, but, like... Well, in Nevada, uh, it was 8% turnout, the Nevada caucuses. Right. So, yeah, so a, a powerful union flooding caucus stations, like, right. can help turn things. Well, and I mean, in t- also in terms of the whole race, you know, that, yeah. like, there was this near tie in Iowa. Right, She got right. clobbered in New Hampshire, uh, but then New Hampshire... Uh, she needed to win Nevada. Nevada, and also by winning... You know, she had been way ahead in South Carolina the whole time, but it was pairing that with a win in Nevada established, like, the narrative that, like, Bernie was just winning in the all-white states. Right. And, and, you know, and she carried that through. I mean, Harry Reid can't, uh, like, win you the Texas primary. No. Uh, but, you know, it was it was a big, substantial help to her campaign, and it seems like, you know— he can potentially pull those levers again in, a, in an important way. Yeah. And and I think that, I mean, certainly conversations about Reed's health, whenever I talk to people that are that are close to Reed, I mean, he um he has been undergoing, I think, chemotherapy uh, more recently. He's he, I mean, he's had he's had cancer for a couple of years now. And and there was like this Mark Leibovich profile of him that was basically like, Harry Reed is going to die imminently. Yep. And he did not. <laughs> he's still here. Um and, you know, when I when I saw him, I mean he's been very active. He he goes to these University of Las Vegas events all the time. He's involved with their like Institute of Politics, um, so he's he's definitely he's definitely a player, but I and and still a very influential, um, important you know dean of Nevada politics. But I do think that there are questions about you know how his health factors into all of this and whether he is going to be as aggressive um, as he was in 2016. Okay, so with that, uh, thank you so much, Ella. I will let you uh, go back to New Hampshire. Uh, see thank what, you. See what is happening there. I guess for for family purposes as well as journalists. Yes. Uh, But, you know, that's all good. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to everybody. Um, So thanks so much to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, the producer, and the Weeds will return on Tuesday. 
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 